Well, while the Nationals may be playing in Baltimore this weekend, heading to Walters is still a great idea. The Tokyo Olympics are finally here, and Walters is a great spot to catch all the action, whether you're into gymnastics or swimming, track and field. Walters has enough TVs to watch everything and anything your heart desires. This year, surfing, skateboarding, softball, and sport climbing have been added to the exhibition events taking place, so make sure you look out for those competitions as well. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking ball, line to left center field. This is way back. This may go, and it is gone. Goodbye. Well, beyond the 364 marker in left center field, Pat Valenka with his third home run of the year. And the Orioles now lead by the score of 3-1. to one. Pitch. Swing a high drive to left center again deep. Chasing back Stevenson. Measuring things at the wall, and it's gone! Into the Orioles' bullpen. Pat Valenka has homered again. He came into the game with two homers. He's hit two tonight, and the Orioles lead 6-1. to one. And Wander Suero has now allowed homers in four consecutive appearances, totaling five. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 24th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, you could say that the Nationals are officially 0 for 2 declaratively when it comes to Fridays after the All-Star break. It was now two Fridays ago, July 16th, on which we had the Friday from hell the Starling Castro news during the day, the 24-8 loss to San Diego at Nationals Park at night. On this most recent Friday, July 23rd, another Steven Strasburg setback is announced during the day. And then a 6-1 loss at the lowly Orioles is what happens at night. Maybe we can make these six-day weeks instead of seven-day weeks for the Nationals, Mark. But uh, this Friday, like the previous Friday, not a good day for the Nationals. No, at least the opening ceremony was taking place at the Olympics. That might have been a little more interesting than this game was. This was a dud. And I mean, they've had a few of them this year, but I think this one ranks right up there. They looked flat. They just had nothing going at all against a pitcher and a team that you would think they'd have some success offensively. I mean, it was only a couple of days ago we were talking about this offense, even without Kyle Schwerber, they're averaging seven runs a game. Now, all of a sudden, they're held to one by the Marlins, held to one by the Orioles. And oh, by the way, the Mets won. And they're now seven back. And this is a critical week, as we've talked about for them. We said they can't crater. We didn't feel like they're going to be in sell mode unless they completely crater this week. Well, they got their work cut out for them now after losing this one. 
Yeah, I mean, you don't want to overreact to one game, but you look at these last two games, a 3-1-10 inning loss to Miami on Wednesday night, and then a 6-1 loss at the Orioles on Friday night. If you're trying to diverge Mike Rizzo from this dual path approach to the MLB trade deadline for this coming Friday, that's not the way to do it with back-to-back losses to the lowly Marlins and lowly Orioles. Well, you mentioned the opening ceremonies on Friday night. I hear that the television ratings actually plummeted for that because the quarter hour numbers for the mass and pre and post game shows spiked because Mark Zuckerman was the host on those shows, did an excellent job as we knew that he would, but I'm sure fans were pleasantly surprised if they didn't see you announce that you were going to be doing those shows on Twitter. But what was it like, man? Like I said, you did a really good job. It's really cool that you got the the chance to do that. Thank you. I I appreciate that. I didn't realize the Nielsen's were out already only a few minutes later. (laughs) That's quick. I didn't know it works that quick in this business. Yeah, it was fun. It was unexpected. Uh, This isn't necessarily something I've aspired to do with my career, but both Dan Kolko and Alex Chapler are out of town this weekend. They called me and said, hey, would you have any interest in doing this? And I said, okay, yeah, ha ha, that's the joke. Okay, what do you really want to ask me about? And they said, no, 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 we'd like you to actually host for the weekend. I said, oh, okay, sure, I'll give it a try. (laughs) And everyone was great. They really helped me out. They kept it as simple as possible for me. I've been on TV before, but this is the first time I've done anything like that, hosting, tossing it to commercial breaks and all that. And it was fun. I will say, though, it's very odd being in this empty ballpark because we're doing the games from Nationals Park. Bob and FP are in the booth next to me. I'm in a booth essentially by myself with a couple of technicians and watching the game on monitors and talking about it. And and then it's over and you're on camera and there's nobody here. And the ballpark, as we're talking right now, is completely silent, completely dark. It, it is a strange sensation. Uh, there's been a few of these over the last year, a lot of different ways of covering games that I'm used to. But this was up there as kind of a, a new one for me and the, you know, not quite the same as being there, obviously. Did you prepare by doing the Ron Burgundy exercise of unique New York, or did you not do that? <laughs> no, I, I did not. I also didn't wear his coat. I didn't have any of that going. I didn't have the teleprompter. I had nothing. I, I went bare bones, simple red mass and polo shirt, hop on the air 30 seconds beforehand. No, I, you know, it was, it was fine. It, like I said, they um, helped me out a lot by making it as simple as possible and, and having me do as little as necessary. I appreciate that. At, at times, I was actually feeling like, hey, I could do more than this. I I got the hang of this. We'll see. Maybe the rest of the weekend, they'll let me do a little bit more. Well, don't ever underestimate the value of unique New York. That's how I prepare for every installment of the Nash Chat (laughs) podcast. So just know that that's always there for you. Unique New York. Unique New York. Mm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. And uh, your night ended up being far more interesting and notable than the Nationals' night. Again, 6-1 loss at the Orioles. The Nats for the game total five hits, work three walks, strike out 11 times, 0 for 8 with runners in scoring position. Again, we're not going to go too nutso over one game, but these last two games have been reminiscent offensively for the Nats of it. You know, what we saw earlier in the season. And this game on Friday night is another instance of the Nationals struggling against a pitcher who has not been good. So far this season, the Orioles starting pitcher on Friday night was Jorge Lopez, who has been among the worst pitchers on what has been a very bad rotation for the Orioles this season. Jorge Lopez came into the game with an ERA of 604 and a whip of 163 over 19 starts this season. Now, after his most recent outing, he did reveal something that's heartbreaking, and that is his son is undergoing chemotherapy. So you can understand, perhaps, why he's having the season that he's having but on Friday night, Jorge Lopez, you know, looked halfway decent. And the Nationals had a hard time against him and then had a particularly hard time against the bullpen. The offense had been rolling, gotten back to not rolling here over these last two games. That's heartbreaking news. I hadn't heard that yet. That, that's really 
sad to hear that he's been dealing with that and trying to pitch through it. Like you said, he pitched quite well in this game. Now, the Nats had some chances. Runners in scoring position in the second, in the fifth, and in the seventh, and they did not get a hit with a runner in scoring position. 0 for 8 in the game. And while the first one in the second inning was the bottom of the order, Para, Barrera, and Stevenson, the other two were the top of the order. These are guys who should be counted on to deliver in those spots. It was Escobar, Turner, and Soto in the fifth, and then Escobar and Turner in the seventh. And it's not just that they made outs. There were some bad at-bats. And the one that stood out to me the most was Alcides Escobar in the seventh. One out, two on, a game that's still competitive at that point. He gets ahead in the count 2-0. And you even heard FP on the broadcast say, okay, this has to be the absolute best possible pitch to swing at. And he got a slider off the plate and he swung and missed. Then he fouled another one off, and at 2-2, he took a fastball over the plate for strike three. That is not a quality at bat in a spot where they needed one. Trey Turner then ends up popping out on the first pitch. I mean, that was kind of the story of the night. They had some chances, and they did not even come close to delivering in them, and that's why they're held to one run against an Orioles pitching staff that entered with the worst ERA in baseball. Escobar for the night, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left three men on base. Trey Turner for the night, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left three men on base. Juan Soto, 0 for 3 with a walk. Tres Pereira came back down to earth, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left four men on base. We've commented on how it's remarkable the Nats, Sans, Kyle Schwarber have had maybe their best offensive stretch of the season. You do wonder, like, at what point does that maybe dry up? At what point does, you know, Alcides Escobar wake up and realize he's Alcides Escobar, you know? At what point does Tres Barrera wake up and realize he's Tres Barrera? Like, there is a part of me that says, all right, this probably is going to happen at some point here, that these guys who have been doing so well are not going to continue to do so well, and the Nats are truly going to feel the impact of not having Kyle Schwarber, are truly going to feel the impact of not having Jan Gomes and Maybe we are starting to see that here. I mean, you know, it's probably unrealistic for Alcides Escobar to continue having an OPS, you know, approaching 800. Like, it's probably not going to keep happening. You know, Tres Pereira, the same kind of a thing. And maybe we're seeing that here over these last few games. Sure. And I think that's fair to say. But I think it's also why, and I, I made this point before, and Mike Rizzo made the same point as well, that for these guys to have the second half they need, it's going to have to be the star players who are getting the job done. That's Trey Turner, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Ryan Zimmerman, who was also in the lineup tonight. They were able to get both Bell and Zimmerman in because they had the DH. They could afford that. Those are the four that are going to have to do it. If you get the contributions to the others, great. That's fantastic. But the star players on this team are the ones that have to rise to the occasion. And at least in this game, they did not, aside from Bell's home run. That was the only offense on the entire night. So, you know, yes, you need some contributions from others, of course. But I think we've known this is a top-heavy roster all along and that their depth is where they are exposed. And that said, they do still have about eight to 10 players at the top of the roster who can match up with anybody. So if they're going to pull this thing off and they've got some work to do now, I do think it has to come from those players and then hope that you get more from the rest of them. It can't be counting on the rest of them to deliver and then hoping that the stars deliver. So you mentioned Ryan Zimmerman. Two things stand out to me in regards to him on Friday. Number one, so obviously you have the DH available to you with this game taking place at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. It was Zimmerman who was the DH. It was Josh Bell who was the first baseman. And that tells you everything you need to know about the defensive season that Josh Bell is having. Josh Bell has done a nice job defensively this year. Now, of course, there's irony in me saying that because Josh Bell ended up getting charged with a missed catch error and a crucial two-run inning for the Orioles in this game. The error was initially attributed to Wander Suero. The official scoring ended up being changed 
on that. That happened in that two-run bottom of the sixth for the Orioles. A quick throw to first, and the throw gets away from Bell. Racing after it, Reyes is going to go to second and out of third as Bell finally retrieves the ball. I think that says something, that Zimmerman was a DH, Bell was a first baseman, and nobody batted an eye. The other thing is this, so Zimmerman in the game 0 for 3 with a walk and 3 strikeouts, but I said walk. Ryan Zimmerman drew a walk in this game. That was Zimmerman's 8th walk of the season. We know he had that stretch in which he hit a bunch of homers. He certainly has had his moments you know, beyond that stretch offensively this year, but the on-base percentage has always been low. That is a remarkably low number. I mean, obviously he doesn't play every game, I get that, but eight walks for Ryan Zimmerman as we're deep into July on the season. That's pretty staggering, yeah, even for a part-time player. And I wonder if some of that is, you know, when you're pinch hitting, the approach very often is first good fastball you see, go after it. Don't You're not really trying to work the count. Maybe that's part of it. But even in the games he started, like you said, he hasn't been all that patient. That was a good at bat leading off, took a 3-2 pitch for ball four. Pretty striking and also striking, like you said, that Josh Bell was at first and Zim at DH. And you're right. I think it says a lot about how they feel about Josh Bell as a first baseman. He's been way better than advertised. He's really worked on it. And I think also, you know, we tend to think, oh, Zimmerman at first base, that's a no-brainer because of the defense. Well, by having him DH and not play the field, he's off his feet a lot. And if the plan is to play him all three games this weekend, which I would expect it will be, maybe that actually helps him get through all three games. And there's not as much wear and tear, say, like Saturday night going into Sunday afternoon. So actually DHing him, even though you would think that's, you know, worse for the team, that might be better for him physically. And they're not losing a lot defensively because Bell has been good. And, you know, the air on Bell, it's the right call because it hit his glove. But that was, I've seen this before with Suero. You know, he throws cutters to the plate. He throws cutters to first base on pickoffs. You can see it veering to his left. And so I think Bell probably was not expecting that. He's got his glove where he thinks the ball is going to be, and it keeps moving further away from him. So yes, I mean, it's charged to him, but I'm really blaming Suero more for that one because it was not a straight throw. It was a, it was a moving pickoff throw and was just not necessary or good in that situation. So Josh Bell coming into games on Friday, plus one defensive run saved on the season wow. at first base. He entered this season in his career, minus 26 defensive run saved at first base. A remarkable turnaround, and he deserves a lot of credit. He has put in the work. He's put in the time. He hasn't just kind of rested on, hey, I'm a hitter, so who cares about my fielding? He's tried to get better, and you know, it's not always pretty, okay? But it's not about style points. It's, do you get the job done? And for the most part, he's gotten the job done defensively this year, so hats off to him. And then, of course, there was, oh, by the way, the home run that Josh Bell hit on Friday night. Basically, the only moment worth remembering from this game. The 1-1, cracked in the air to deep right center field. Forget about it. A tape measure home run halfway up the section in right center. Number 15 on the season for Josh Bell. Another moonshot from Josh Bell. A leadoff homer on a bomb to right center field off Jorge Lopez in that top of the fourth inning. The home run going a projected 448 feet per stat cast. I guess you still have to say that Kyle Schwarber has the championship belt on this Nationals team in terms of hitting tape measure shots. But Josh Bell is close behind, and uh, it seems like every one of his homers these days, well over 400 feet. Well, that's what I was going to say, is that he's not hitting wall scrapers at all. These are no doubters. And we noted during the homestand, he was hitting them right-handed to left field. Now, this one was uh, left-handed to right center field. When he's making contact, he's hitting the ball hard, he's hitting it in the air, and he's hitting it a long way. And that's exactly 
who they thought he was uh, going to be. And at one point, I think after the home run, he had the batting average up to 250 for the season. And that's good. I mean, from where he was at 133 in the middle of May, essentially two, less than two and a half months later, up to 250, that's fantastic. He is on a really good trajectory. He's been doing this for more than two months now. And if he just keeps this up, the numbers at the end of the season are going to look like what they were hoping for all along from him. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Match Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it. Baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro, Silver Brands Brewing Company. When you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. 
Yeah, I want to give, you know, Andrew went down, he, you know, he worked to get back. Uh, he was swinging about well when he was down in, in, uh, in Rochester. Uh, so we got him back up here, and I want to give him an opportunity to play against some righties uh, and put victory in against the lefties. I, you know, I, right now, it just seemed to work that way. It's not going to be a straight platoon. I mean, I, you know, there's some some uh, right-handed pitchers that, you know, I like righties, right-handed batters against. Uh, so, uh, you know, but I told, you know, I talked to Victor about it. And, um, but we want to try to get Victor, you know, right. I know he's working every day with K-Long. He's hitting early. Uh, he's doing a bunch of different things. So we need to get him going. One other thing with the Nationals lineup, we are now officially in a timeshare in center field between Victor Robles and Andrew Stevenson. Andrew Stevenson was the Nats starting center fielder again in this game. This off Stevenson being the Nats starting center fielder in two of the three games in the three-game set with Miami this week. Uh, Stevenson was productive offensively. I mean, it's all relative in this game, but one for two with a double and a walk. He had a leadoff double in the top of the fifth, a one-out seven-pitch walk in the top of the seventh, despite having been down to the count at one point, one-two. I know Davey addressed this with you guys before the game. It It was a little confusing reading what Davey said and kind of interpreting it. So I know it's not exactly a platoon situation, but this clearly is no longer just Victor Robles' job. Well, you called it a timeshare. I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to say Andrew Stevenson owns center field now, and Victor Robles is renting from him every once in a while. <laughs> That's the way it looks. Now, Davey said it's not a straight platoon lefty-righty, but he said Stevenson will start most games against righties, and Robles will start against lefties and maybe occasionally against a righty. I think there's a message being sent here. I think it's clear that the manager has decided that Andrew Stevenson gives his team a better chance to win right now than Victor Robles even with the drop-off in defense, which I don't think is huge. Victor Robles is, you know, elite defensively. I think Andrew Stevenson is solid out there. He's not going to hurt you. He's not Robles, but he's not going to hurt you. And at the plate, I think there's a feeling it's not just the production, but like we talked about the other night, it's also about the approach. It's about the smarts. It's about not bunting with a catcher on first base. It's about not running into outs on the bases. All of that together, I think they have finally reached a point that they feel like Robles is hurting them more than he's helping them. Now, it doesn't mean this is going to be this way for the rest of the year. It doesn't mean they've given up on Robles forever. But right now, for a team that has to try to win every single game, they feel like, especially against righties, that Andrew Stevenson gives them a better chance than Victor Robles. Is any of this attitude... I mean, when you see a team sour on a guy, you always have to wonder about that. Is there stuff behind the scenes that the Nationals don't like? Have you heard anything along those lines with Robles? I don't think it's attitude. I think, if anything, it's that proverbial trying too hard. I think Robles overthinks it in a way. Like I said, that situation where he decides to bunt with a catcher on first base when they just want him to swing away and get a rally going in the ninth inning. I think he's overthinking it. I think on the basis, he's trying to make things happen that aren't there. He knows he's pressing. He knows the kind of season he's had coming off a season last year that was bad. I know he's probably looking over his shoulder and seeing Stevenson. And I think he's trying to be overly aggressive and that's what's happening. So I don't think it's a case of, you know, I don't think he's sulking. I don't think he's bad mouthing anyone behind the scenes. I know he works hard. He's not, he's not showing up late to the ballpark. It's nothing like that. I think he is just not playing with just his baseball instincts and abilities and is trying too hard to make up for what he's done so far this year. And that's the worst thing to do. You have to just trust your abilities and the fact that you made it this far on the skills that you have. Do you think it's possible that now they'd be selling at a low point? Do you think it's possible Mike Rizzo would use Victor Robles as trade bait come the trade deadline? Like you said, that would be selling pretty low. 
and that's not necessarily his uh, his style. Now, if somebody made him an offer, you know, if if Chris Bryant could be had for Victor Robles, maybe that's a different story. But um, I, no, I I don't think so. That may be a conversation for the off season as they really decide is he part of the future or not. Now, I will say I thought I, I had a reader Q and A the other day, and somebody asked me about things like this, and I said you could argue that maybe Stevenson is increasing trade value and that that could be something they could use because as much as we talk about trading prospects to get veterans who can help you right now, sometimes there are big leaguers or fringe big leaguers who don't have a great role on your team right now, but for another team, especially a rebuilding team, they might actually have a chance to put you out there every day. And so Stevenson, if other teams are interested, maybe he is part of a package that gets you a player when you're buying, not selling. I don't have information that says that's what they're doing, and I don't know that's the direction they're going to go. And at the moment, they're playing him over Robles, so they're not going to trade him if they think he gives them a better chance. But something like that, let's not forget, if you buy, it doesn't mean you have to trade prospects. Sometimes it can be big leaguers for big leaguers. Yeah, and especially if you don't have many attractive prospects, you may have to trade some big leaguers to get some other big leaguers who you want. Well, Patrick Corbin was the national starting pitcher in this 6-1 loss at the Orioles on Friday night, and Patrick Corbin struggled again. Now, you could argue that he was not as bad as as his final line indicated. Okay, fine. But there's only only so much excuse-making you can make here. Five runs, four earned in five and a third innings. And personally, with Patrick Corbin, to me, I'm past the point of trying to excuse this. I'm past the point of trying to, like, write this off. Like, he's not a good pitcher. He's having another bad season. He's got an ERA now of 571 over 19 starts this season. And let's be honest, it's not like he was facing, you know, the Houston Astros on Friday night or the San Diego Padres on Friday night. He was facing the Orioles. Now he got off to a great start, three perfect innings. You loved what you saw in the early stages of this game from Patrick Corbin. And then things went south. He gives up two runs in the bottom of the fourth, leadoff double by Cedric Mullins, RBI double by Austin Hayes, two out RBI single by Ramon Arias. Corbin then issues a two-out, seven-pitch walk to the ex-NAD Pedro Severino, who Corbin had down in the count at one point, one-two. Corbin gives up a run in the bottom of the fifth on a one-out solo homer by Pat Valeka, who was Eddie Murray on Friday night. Two home runs, but on this first homer by Valeka, it's hit to left center on a one-two pitch. Understand, Pat Valeka came into this game with an OPS plus on the season of 41. 100 is league average. 41 is atrocious. That Pat Valeka homered off Patrick Corbin on a 1-2 pitch on Friday night. And then Corbin got charged with two runs, one earned in the bottom of the sixth, during which, yes, the fielding failed Corbin. That is true. But also in this inning was Corbin giving up a leadoff double to Trey Mancini. You then had a one-out fielder's choice off the bat of Arias. Trey Turner threw too high to Tres Pereira, and uh, Tres Pereira pulled a Wilson Ramos, had trouble catching the baseball. And then Wander Suero came into the game. You had that errant pickoff attempt, the errors charge of Josh Bell. Arias goes to third, and then he ends up scoring on a sack fly by Severino. So yeah, maybe Corbin didn't pitch as bad as the line indicates, but Mark, it's another outing in which Patrick Corbin does not get the job done. It was two different starts in my mind, Al. Those first three innings, Lights out, nine up, nine down. After that, a disaster. And here's the difference. What did he do in the first three innings? What did he do in the last three innings? Early on, he got ahead in the count. This is everything for him. And I got the stat finally that confirms that this is the difference. It's about strike one and fastball command. This season, when he starts off a hitter, 0-1. So first pitch strike, the opponents are hitting 216 off of him. The rest of the at-bat. When he throws ball one, starts off 1-0, 
They're hitting 392 off him. That's a difference of 176 points. Now, you say, oh, that's probably the case for everyone. Not this much. This is the nice thing about working on TV. They supply you with all these stats that you don't have to look up yourself. According to this, that is the largest difference in batting average on first pitch, you know, 1-0 versus 0-1, since they began tracking this in 1988, okay? <laughs> 176. The next on the list was Mark Leiter in 1997, and that was a difference of 154 points. This is 22 points more than that. Look back at those first three innings. What was he doing? He was throwing strike one with his fastball, getting ahead, and now they can chase the slider. In those later innings, he's falling behind everybody, and now they don't have to worry about pitches over the zone, and so they're not going to chase the slider. We've talked about it all year long. That is his one path to success. Get ahead with the fastball, then make them think you're throwing fastballs. They're actually sliders, and they chase them. If they don't trust the fastball to be a strike, they're not going to chase the slider. That was the end of the story for this one. I want to read to you, too, the extent to which Patrick Corbin, the strikeout pitcher, has plummeted in recent seasons. Here are his strikeouts per nine innings. We'll start with 2018, his last season with Arizona, the season that got him that six-year, $140 million deal with the Nationals. Strikeouts per nine innings in 2018, 11.07. First year with the Nats, 2019, 10.6. Second year with the Nats, 2020, 8.22. Now this season with the Nats, 6.92. He's gone from 11.07 in 2018 to 6.92 strikeouts per innings in 2021. That is a precipitous decline especially when you consider the environment that we're in, which is strikeouts go up every year. There has been such an inflation when it comes to strikeouts in recent years. And in a time in which almost everyone's strikeouts are going up, this guy's strikeouts have nosedived over these last few years. It's very concerning what has happened here with Patrick Corbin. And, you know, he has stayed healthy. So as far as we know, this isn't an issue of health. As far as we know, this isn't an issue of like, you know, we brought up what Jorge Lopez is dealing with, like there's something off the field that Patrick Corbin is dealing with. It feels like it's a mystery. We know what's going wrong, but the why behind the what, to me, it's troubling that we don't have a firm grasp of what exactly has taken place here with Patrick Corbin. Yeah, extremely troubling. And like you said, this is a strikeout pitcher. He's not a pitch to contact guy. And it's not like he's deciding to try to be a pitch to contact guy. No, this is who he is, and he is not able to do it. And like I said, I think the main reason is his strikeout pitch is the slider. Remember, we've seen all the time these stats you see every once in a while about most strikeouts on sliders since 2019. And Patrick Corbin leads all the majors, all pitchers, in strikeouts on sliders. Well, he's not doing that this year at all. That is his wipeout pitch. But if he can't consistently throw that, and if he can't throw fastballs for strike to set up the slider— He's got nothing else. This is just not working. And, you know, in a different situation, if everybody else was healthy, we'd be talking about, can they afford to keep him in the rotation? Well, right now they have to keep him in the rotation because they only have five healthy starters at the moment. One of them, Joe Ross, may be coming back soon. The other one, Steven Strasburg, may not be coming back soon. I think it's safe to say he will not be coming back soon because this ultimately was probably the worst news on Friday. Steven Strasburg has suffered another setback. So it was last Saturday, July 17th, the day on which we had the uh, gunshot suspended game, that Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference revealed that Strasburg had felt discomfort in his neck after throwing a simulated game in San Francisco on July 9th. We then had a couple of days on which there was some at least semi-encouraging news with the Steven Strasburg recovery. 
And then on Friday, we got another whammy. Davey and his pregame presser revealing. Yeah, so Strasburg, uh, once again, he had the uncomfortable feeling in his neck. We backed him down again. And now uh, we're going to have to figure something else out for him. Uh, I know they're, they're going to look at some different options. Probably see see if we can see, find another specialist for him to go see. He's been on the 10-day injured list since June 2nd with an X-drain. This is his second 10-day IL stint of the season. He's made just five starts all season. I said to you after the last setback, to me, it's 50-50 whether this guy pitches again this season. Now we have setback number two, and in less than a week, in terms of us being told about this, last Saturday was setback number one. This most recent Friday, we get told of setback number two. What did you make of what Davey said? And how about now that Strauss may have to see another specialist? I was surprised, to be honest. And I know you're going to say, how can you never be surprised when Steven Strasburg has a setback? But I'm telling you, I watched him here at Nats Park a few, just a couple days ago. In the bullpen, everything looked fine. The day after that, he's out there throwing long toss 300 feet. He's standing at like the center field wall, throwing all the way to the right field line perfectly. I mean, he's putting everything, all his effort into it. It looked like he was fine. And I was fully expecting when Davey was asked for the, the latest Strasburg update before the game on Friday that he was going to say, yeah, he's ready to go pitch a rehab game or uh, simulate a game against hitters, something like that. And so when he said that he's dealing with this again in his neck and they added the trap to it this time and said he may have to go visit a specialist and they've had to dial him back, I honestly couldn't believe it because that did not match up with what I thought I had seen the last few days. So I always try to say when it comes to athletes, we can never know what they're actually feeling in their bodies. And it's easy for us to look at this and say, hey, how bad could it be if he was just throwing the other day and everything was fine? Well, we don't really know what he's feeling. Obviously, Steven Strasburg doesn't want to miss the season. It's killing him not to be out there. So if this was something that he felt like he could pitch through, he would be doing it. Clearly, it's not something he thinks he can pitch through. And that's why they're taking this next step. And the problem now is we're not just talking about what does this mean for the rest of this season, but what does this mean for the rest of his career? Like, what is actually going on here? What is the treatment for it? And how do you solve this and get back to being the pitcher he was two years ago? I don't want to jump the gun, but I'll just say we've seen other pitchers who are great and at the top of their game, and when they lose it, they lose it quick, and it never comes back. And you just hope that's not the case here. You hope that there is still a lot more left in that arm. But everything that we've seen since the end of the World Series in 2019 has been bad news. And in some ways, it's almost worse that it's these nagging, mysterious things. It's not like they can say, oh, yeah, well, he's got a bum shoulder or he's got a, a torn elbow ligament. No, those are things that can just be fixed and then you have a rehab program from it. I don't know what this injury is. I don't know if they know what the injury is. I don't know how you come back from it. Yeah, that's why I asked you the last time we talked about this. Do they know yet what exactly is causing this? And the answer pretty obviously is no. You know, there is something poetic about this news happening as the Nationals are getting set to play with the Orioles. What is universally regarded as the worst contract in baseball is the Orioles deal with Chris Davis. The Chris Davis contract, and it's a terrible contract, that's a seven-year, $161 million deal. The Steven Strasburg contract is a seven-year, $245 million contract. And at least Chris Davis, and I'm not trying to say that the Davis deal has been anything but an unbelievable disaster, but at least Chris Davis, first two seasons of that contract, 
did something for the Orioles, okay? He wasn't great, but, you know, he wasn't terrible. He really became terrible in year three of that contract. Strasburg has started seven games since he signed that contract. The contract is an absolute horror show at this point. You can't tell me that Mike Rizzo wouldn't undo that contract, that Mark Lerner wouldn't undo that contract in a heartbeat right now. They'll never say it publicly. They'd be nuts not to want to undo that contract. And it's not his fault. It's not that Strasburg is soft. Like, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say, to your point of we've seen this before with pitchers, these big money contracts for pitchers in their 30s almost never work out. Max Scherzer is like one of the few exceptions. And this guy with this deal, this is year two of seven years, $245 million. It's like you just got married. You're just back from the honeymoon. And then you find out, you know, that your wife is selling cocaine on the side. And you're like, we just got married. We just started into this relationship. That's where you're at right now with Strasburg. It's not like you had a few years of him doing okay with this deal. And then the injuries happened. The injuries have happened from the get-go. It's really frightening what the Nats may have in front of themselves here. This may be Chris Davis times 10 in terms of a burden of a contract. And, uh, and, and it's, it's impossible to have the Strasburg conversation and not invoke the contract because the contract is such a big part of all this. You're right. You're not wrong in anything that you just said. I think you just have to hope. Everybody has to hope that that's not where this is headed and that whether it's this year or next year or beyond, that we do see Steven Strasburg on the mound pitching and pitching effectively. I don't know how this is going to play out. I'm not sure anybody does. All I'll say is, and, and I know you've agreed with me on this, is that at the time, it's very hard to say no to Steven Strasburg after he won the World Series MVP with the best season of his life and a guy who wanted to resign, who wanted to stay here for the rest of his career. If they had said no to that after Rendon was walking away as well, that's a tough thing to explain to your fans why you didn't resign him. Now, maybe in the end, that would have been the smartest thing to do. We'll know that eventually. But in the moment, I can't fault them for doing it because of the timing of it and because of what it would have meant for the organization if they lost him at the end of that World Series. Yeah, I don't fault them either. I advocated for them to sign him, so I'm not going to be a phony on this. It's just uh, it's incredible how much it's not working out. And you can't say that there weren't red flags because there were. Significant injury history, pitcher in his 30s, significant mileage on the arm, you know, the undeniable history of these deals. Like some, sometimes you just have to say no, you know, like the anti-drug campaign when we were kids, just say no. You just got to just say no to these big money contracts for pitchers. And at least right now, the Strasburg contract is another example of that. Well, perhaps happier days are on the way when it comes to national starting pitchers. We've sung the praises of Cade Cavalli so much this season. He's pitching for AA Harrisburg right now. The numbers aren't great, but of course, you can't always just judge a minor league pitcher by his numbers. For the latest on the Nationals' top prospect, and indeed, one of the top pitching prospects in the sport, we get this update now from the voice of the AA Harrisburg Senators, Terry Byram. This is Terry Byram, radio broadcaster with the Harrisburg Senators. Cade Cavalli made his first start for the Senators a little over a month ago on June 18th versus Reading. He has started five games overall for the Senators, and though he has struggled with his command at times, it's easy to see why he's the number one prospect in the Nationals organization. In 23 and two-thirds innings, he has struck out 35 hitters, and opposing batters are hitting just 228 against him. Given that he didn't switch to pitching full-time and only at Oklahoma until 2019, his sophomore season, and the 2020 season was cut short due to the pandemic, Cade is uh, still refining his game. 
He has an electric fastball that tops off in the upper 90s, but his best stuff for his secondary pitches, his breaking balls and change-ups. Time and again, left-handed hitters are frozen with his breaking pitch, and when he can throw that pitch for a called strike, it sets up everything else in his repertoire. I, for one, can't wait to watch how he improves from start to start, and as hard as he works with the Senators pitching coach Sam Naring between starts, there's been improvement with each outing. The Nationals should be excited and their fans with the future of Cade Cavalli. All right, we thank Terry Byram for that update on Cade Cavalli. We've talked about this, and especially now with the latest on Steven Strasburg, could we, might we, possibly we, see Cade Cavalli pitch at the major league level this season? Among the many items that Mike Rizzo got into with you guys, Mark, the other day when he spoke to you at length, was Cade Cavalli. What did Rizzo have to say? Well, I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but without him flat out saying there was no chance he's going to be pitching in the big leagues this year, he pretty much said there's no chance or very little chance that it's going to happen. And what it boils down to is a couple of things. And I've alluded to this before based on my own just speculation and knowing how the organization treats young pitchers. Remember, there was no minor league season last year after he was drafted. He was at the alternate training site in Fredericksburg. So this is his first true professional season. And they always are watching these guys' pitch counts and innings count and being very careful with it. We've also seen, as great as he was at single A, he's starting to learn a few things at double A that it's not as easy as that. And as Rizzo said, the biggest thing that happens to young pitchers as they come up through the system that they have to learn is you have to be able to get hitters out in the strike zone the higher up you get. In the lower levels, they'll chase. The higher up you get, the less likely they are to chase pitches out of the zone. So you have to be throwing quality strikes to get them out. And he sees that as still something he has to work on. Now, it's not disparaging him at all. He's great. They love him. They think he's got a bright future here. But Rizzo described it essentially as he's even mapping out in his own head and saying he's going to get through this season. They may shut him down at some point to kind of monitor the innings. And then he said he's going to go pitch in the Arizona Fall League in all likelihood in October. Now, that's a good step for a prospect to be against the best in the majors, and that could set him up for 2022. But if you're thinking Cade Cavalli in D.C. in September of 2021, reading between the lines the way Rizzo said that, that didn't sound to me like that's at all on his radar. Well, uh, Friday was July 23rd. It was the one-year anniversary of Game 1 of the Nationals' 2020 season. Yes, the condensed 60-game season for the Nationals started One year ago on Friday, July 23rd, 2020, was the start of the Nationals' 2020 season in the midst, of course, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what a fitting start this ended up being. A 4-1 loss to the Yankees at Nationals Park in a rain-shortened game that ended with one out in the top of the sixth inning. And, you know, we've talked about how the Nats have seemingly been cursed since they won the 2019 World Series. July 23rd, 2020 may well be the peak of the curse. Okay. So you start with the fact that, of course, you're starting a condensed 60 game season. You then throw into the mix the Nats lost this season opener, what was a rain shortened season opener, a game in which the rain delay lasted longer than the actual game action one hour 58 minutes versus one hour 43 minutes. Also had on this day the terrible news shortly before the game that Juan Soto had tested positive for COVID-19. Of course, we have since found out that that almost certainly was a false positive and that he never had COVID-19. And you also had this, and I'm guessing this has been forgotten by a few. July 23rd, 2020 was the day on which the Redskins announced that they would be known as the Washington football team. 
for the 2020 season. So that news ended up hijacking, in many ways, the sports news cycle that day. And instead of people focusing on the start of the Nats season, yet all this conversation about the name change and, oh, they're going by Washington football team. What do we think about that? Could that be the permanent name, et cetera? A bad day, a bad start to a bad season, and, of course, an empty stadium. What are your thoughts? What are your memories of that day and uh, (laughs) the many wacko things that ended up happening that day? Yeah, I did not remember the football team timing of that. Uh, I was probably at the moment consumed with trying to figure out how did Juan Soto get COVID and what does this mean for the team? What I can tell you about the scene here at Nats Park that night, the word that I just kept thinking in my head was, this is sad. It's just sad. It's the banner raising ceremony, the, the championship pennant going up over the scoreboard. And they did it with nobody in the stands. And I know for people at home as well, it was a problem because this was an ESPN game not a massing game. And they were kind of cutting in and showing some of it during their pregame show, but cutting in and out. It was not a full-fledged, we're going to show you the whole ceremony like Masson would have if they were doing the game. And I know I remember a lot of fans being upset about not being able to see it. Well, I can tell you if you missed it, you didn't really miss anything because it was just sad. It was sad. They raised this banner. There's nobody here to celebrate. The players are clapping, but it just didn't feel like the same thing. Dr. Fauci, our good friend, Dr. Fauci, threw out the first pitch. It was a terrible first pitch that he threw. And then the game itself was horrible. And Max Scherzer gave up a home run, a titanic home run in like the first inning. To I can't remember if it was Judge or Stanton or both of them, but it was just ridiculous. And then the rains came and the game is shortened. It just, everything you could think of, of to draw up like the worst case scenario for your Opener after winning the World Series, this was it. And I know a lot of fans wondered if they would do that, if they would even raise the banner, if they'd wait till there were going to be fans there. And initially they said that they did want to wait. They wanted to do that with fans in attendance. The problem is at the time, they thought that there would be fans in the stadium a lot sooner than there were. And by July 23rd, they realized it's not happening this year. And if we don't do it now, we're going to wait a year to do it when we're no longer the defending champions. And they felt like they kind of had to do it. And it just made for a sad scene. Uh, It's probably the least memorable opening day they've ever had. And what should have been a glorious, fantastic night at the ballpark. And it was nothing like that at all for a variety of reasons. I would argue no championship team in at least modern sports history has been robbed of a proper victory lap the way the Nats have been robbed. It's really a shame that they had this epic World Series win, you know, seven games, 4-0 on the road in that World Series, defeating the cheating Astros, coming up with this intricate system by which the Nats were able to conceal signs to beat the Astros, you know, Steven Strasburg MVP, all the things everybody remembers. And you never get the chance to truly celebrate that, properly commemorate that, and let's be honest too, reap the financial benefits of that with, you know, an increase in season ticket sales and merchandise at the ballpark, et cetera, increased television ratings. It's a real shame that the Nats have not been able to gain the benefits of that. And I think that day probably highlights that, that you you have to raise a banner in an empty stadium. I mean, what a depressing thing. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 led to many more depressing and sad things. But just from purely a sports standpoint, um, you hate to see that. And it, it's uh, you would have never like thought that, right? In October of 2019, the Nats win Game 7 in Houston. And to fast forward to July 23rd, 2020, that's how they're going to raise the banner? What? Like, imagine telling your October 2019 self where we would be at with the Nats and the rest of the country in July 2020. 
never would have believed it. Never, <laughs> not even close to that. And you're right. They, more than any other team, have been robbed of what, what I call the victory lap. You know, the things that happened the year after, which are just as important sometimes. Now, the one thing they had that some other teams that won their titles during the pandemic did not have was the parade. They at least got that, the parade, then the White House visit right after. That was a whole other story. We don't have to get into that. Parade was a great celebration for everyone. And teams that have won titles since then have not necessarily been able to do that. But everything since then, from the moment Strasburg opted out of his contract that night, has gone downhill. I know Tim went through all of the calamities on a previous episode. The victory lap is what they missed out on that all other teams have. And I like what you pointed out about the financial impact of that as well. We won't know really what they lost because of a lack of season ticket sales, lack of interest in the team, TV ratings, all that kind of stuff that they lost because of the lost 2020 season with no fans. And it obviously has not just immediately come back here in 2021. Some of that's the way the team's played. But I do think some of that as well is just the fact that this was what happened, you know, in the wake of winning their championship. Yeah. And you mentioned the White House visit. And no, we're not going to open up that can of worms. But even that, right, that's supposed to be a feel good day. Everybody has a few chuckles. Ha ha ha. Even that became controversial. Even that became something for which people spewed venom and vigor. And, you know, I mean, I, I took phone calls on the radio for hours the next day of, you know, people were so angry, you know, Ryan Zimmerman and Kurt Suzuki, et cetera. It's like even something like that ended up not being what it was supposed to be. So anyway, we hope brighter days are ahead for all of us. Uh, but what a day that was, July 23rd, 2020. You tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. T-shirts, Nats Chat Podcast T-shirts, get yours. Uh, so many of you have. We appreciate that so much. The website uh, where you can get your Nats Chat Pod T-shirts is natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. It was interesting. I kept on practicing till I threw my arm out when I got up there. <laughs> I threw a line drive to first base. <laughs> But so next time, maybe, you know, a little less warm up, you're saying? No, next time I just would just, you know, just lob the ball to the to the catcher. And that's it. Not worrying about throwing a 65 mile an hour pitch, which was a big mistake. Right, right. <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.